0: Hi and welcome to episode 136 of Talking With Painters, where Australian painters talk about their lives in art. I'm Maria Stolger, coming to you from Gadigal Land, and today I'm bringing you my conversation with one of our most highly skilled and popular portrait painters, Paul Newton. But when I met Paul in his Sydney studio recently we got so carried away with our conversation I left with a really long recording so rather than give you a two and a half hour episode I thought I'd make this into a two-part episode and I'm hoping to publish the second part between Christmas and New Year. All the best to everybody over the holiday season and thank you, thank you, thank you for all your support throughout the year I've said it before, but without you, there is no point to this podcast. You keep me energized to keep producing these episodes through your DMs and your comments on social media and your emails through the website and even meeting you in person. It not only makes me feel great, but the warm and inclusive art community we've created, which knows no borders, is a wonderful thing. If this is the first time you're listening to the podcast, I've been interviewing Australian painters for over six years now and my aim is for you to get to know the painter behind the painting through these podcast episodes but also through YouTube videos where you can see the artists in their studios or at their exhibitions. There are actually over 170 videos on the YouTube channel now with the latest video being a recording I made of tributes to the late Nicholas Harding by friends and family at the STC on Sydney Harbour a week ago. If you have an hour spare, I think you'd love to hear those words and music and there is a link to that in the show notes. And I finally have had a newsletter up and running for a few months now. It comes out roughly once a month where I keep you updated on the latest podcast episode and YouTube videos and there's a link to the sign-up page for that in the show notes as well. Also, some of you might know that I'm always going on about the Art Gallery of New South Wales as my happy place. So hang around at the end of this episode where I share some thoughts on the new expansion of the gallery, which opened a couple of weeks ago. It was all very exciting. Thanks also to everyone who came to the Artists in Conversation series at the Art Gallery of New South Wales this year. This is the second year that I've been asked by the Art Gallery Society to interview artists live. It's been so much fun talking with those artists about their work. And I'm pleased to say that I've been asked to continue it next year. So I'll keep you posted when that will be coming up. I'm also planning to get back to live Instagram as well, possibly another art quiz for those who enjoyed that, because I absolutely love connecting directly with you all. Also, for those of you who might not know this, I'm also an artist myself. I love oil painting and in particular portraiture, which brings me to today's guest, one of Australia's best portrait painters. If you're interested in the Archibald Prize, you no doubt will have seen a Paul Newton portrait. He's been a finalist 15 times, People's Choice winner twice, and Packing Room winner twice. But those portraits are just the tip of the iceberg. He's been painting portraits for over 30 years, and his sitters are notable people spanning the arts, business, law, sport, the church, the military, and more. From Hugh Jackman to Kylie Minogue, from former Prime Minister Bob Hawke to former Governor General Sir William Dean, from David Gonski to Frank Lowy, Royan H.G. to David Campisi, Maggie Tabra and even St Mary MacKillop. This is a man who has six works in the National Portrait Gallery, has been awarded art prizes in the US and his many, many commissions include 32 pictures for the interior of the Domus Australia Chapel in Rome. So here's my conversation with Paul Newton. All the works we talk about are on the website talkingwithpainters.com. I always like to hear about the artist's history and and particularly their childhood and what memories they have of art as a child. So could you share some um, memories?
1: My earliest memory is I would sit up in bed at night um, and draw and my parents were very happy about that because I would go to bed when the my siblings were more reluctant to do so, and um, it was always my greatest passion to to draw, not so much to paint. But I had a one of those series of uh, felt pens, which back in the day they I remember they they came out with a pack of seventy two, which I got for Christmas or a birthday or something of that sort. And it was just the most wondrous thing to have and, and the most wonderful thing to do.
0: Yeah, and what, were your parents uh, artistic themselves or your family? They, they weren't. Um,
1: my dad was an engineer. Um, he actually was reasonably talented at, at painting, although he never really pursued it in any sense. And my auntie was um, is quite a good painter. In fact, I've got a painting outside of hers that I've I, got um, when she passed away a couple of years ago so she had a lot of talent in fact one of the things I I remember as a young guy being told by my mom was about Uncle Leo this uncle who was apparently this great painter from uh, from her family and people would say oh you must get your talent from Uncle Leo so I went through these years thinking wow this guy must have been fantastic and they're talking about him generations later And anyway, they were cleaning out the garage one time and found this painting by Uncle Leo. And my mum said, oh, have a look at this. And I I was excited to see it. And it was dreadful. It was this, (laughs) it was a little picture of a yacht that looked like it had been done by a five-year-old and not a very, you know, (laughs) talented five-year-old. And so my whole illusion of uh, any ability I might have had stemming from that connection with Uncle Leo was instantly... Uh, dismantled.
0: Yeah, right. That's funny how, you know, folklore can come through the family, you know, the stories. Um, So your dad painted?
1: Yeah, he did. Not very much and really very much as a a minor hobby. Every now and then the the mood would take him and he would do a bit of painting. And I remember, again, when I was very young, thinking that he was very good. And uh, he was an engineer, so I guess he had a good eye for detail and structure and um, but never really pursued it and I don't it's it's hard to I mean they were both my parents were very encouraging of me but when I started to work as a as an artist and originally I was working as an illustrator in the advertising industry and I think because my dad didn't quite comprehend didn't quite understand how it worked every time I'd see him every you know a few weeks or so we'd catch up and he'd say um, you know have you got enough work on and He was worried about me because he just thought it was such a precarious way to make a living, and it's true. I mean, it is a very precarious way to try and make a living, so he was right, but thankfully I was able to keep busy. So
0: Yeah. Well, it's interesting that you say that your dad was an engineer because I noticed that after high school Mm. you did science. Yeah. You did a science degree. I did. So can you tell me a bit about, you know, your art uh, education in high school and, and sort of what happened after that?
1: Yeah. I went to a boys' school that back in the uh, late 70s didn't offer art as a subject, mainly because there weren't enough of the boys that wanted to do that. So um, I didn't really have any uh, introduction to art in any kind of formal sense at school. And I, I was pursuing academic subjects, so I went on and did a science degree with majors in pure maths and physics even to this day, I still I enjoy listening to podcasts and videos about um, string theory or the latest theories of cosmology, things to do with science. And in many ways, uh, they're actually very similar. They're both, in fact, probably the most creative person or people I've ever met in my life so far were those that I remember in the pure maths department at Sydney University where I was studying um, because it was an entirely abstract, Uh, thing that they were dealing with. There was no... I guess there may have been a distant practical application, but what they were dealing with was purely abstract. And they were thinking... Their their thoughts were... um, extremely creative in a way that many artists yeah. are not you know yeah,
0: that's so that really struck me
1: at the time
0: yeah right so they had to sort of think outside the box yeah
1: they were thinking of things that didn't literally exist yeah. and you know in four-dimensional space time or something that you can't visualize and and so it required a great creative uh, uh intellect to be mm. able to to deal with those sorts of uh, subjects so um so i, I don't see that the creative pursuits, visual art, music and other things of that sort are that dissimilar to pure science. Mm-hmm. Maybe engineering is a little bit more practical and, and, and so it's probably a little different, but certainly science in its purest form. And mathematics, I mean, the language of nature is entirely abstract, really. I mean, it has yeah. practical applications, but it, in, it, in and of itself it's purely abstract.
0: Yeah, that's true. Um, so, okay, so how do we hop from a science degree to becoming an illustrator,
1: I was um, well. Even before I got to that, I was working as a musician for a, a number of years. And music, as a as a young person, was my greatest passion. I loved playing music and listening to music. And, and I, most of my friends were musicians, so it wasn't a big leap for me to get involved with music. And it's something that I'd always wanted to do. In fact, when I was in about year eight in high school, um, I was in a a boys' choir at the Morris Brothers School I attended, and we were we got this opportunity to be the the choir in the professional production of Joseph and the amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat. There was at the Seymour Centre at Sydney Uni, and Mark Holden was Joseph, and he was brilliant. You know, young, I think he was about twenty one, handsome guy, and. Brilliant voice,
0: yeah. For people outside of Australia, he was a big he was a big superstar back in those days. Wasn't yeah, he? like he a was. singer. Yeah, yeah, he was pop, a bit a of a heartthrob. He wore yeah, the carnation
1: in his pocket. That's right. So yeah. he was Joseph, and I can still remember some of the tunes. I went, I went uh, sing them now, of course. <laughs> but um, so I think that encouraged me to see music as not only a, a possible professional activity but just something that I love to do and um, but anyway I I eventually realized after years of of working and playing in pubs and restaurants and and Queensland Island resorts which in your 20s is a fun thing to do but I eventually came to the conclusion that um, music wasn't something I was going to be able to do forever and you know and I I was getting older and I remember my parents saying you know it's about time you got a real job Paul.
0: So did you write any music?
1: I did, yeah, I yeah. did. It wasn't groundbreaking. We actually, the band I was in it once, because there were lots of different bands, and we'd kind of come and go, and members would would come and go and change. But we were on New Faces. We
0: really, yeah, we went,
1: we we got. Um, <laughs>
0: we'll Wait a second. The, okay, so New Faces was a Saturday. Was that that?
1: S- it was, was Daryl Summers. Daryl Summers was, he was hosting. Hey, hate Saturday. Saturday. Yeah, that's at right. The time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it was that period so we went down to melbourne we were flown down we felt like rock stars for the weekend yeah we flew down and anthony Aykroyd was one of the judges along with glenn Shorrock and who was lrb's uh, uh lead singer yeah yeah i remember we were we were playing this song and um anthony Aykroyd said you look like a crossfit i should lead up by saying uh i was just wearing maybe a white kind of a pirate shirt one of those loose fitting white shirts <laughs> one of the guys was wearing leather pants the other guy was wearing the drummer was wearing a um a, co- a US college t-shirt for uh, shirt sleeved shirt and anthony Aykroyd said i think you need to work on your appearance guys there's, there's not much continuity taking place at the moment it looks like a cross between um spinal tap meets the brady bunch <laughs> which was just so accurate <laughs>
0: Did you have mullets?
1: No, right. Uh, no, thankfully.
0: I can show you a photo. Oh, yeah. I want to see a photo later, definitely. Yeah. And were you the singer? Yes. Oh, you were yeah, the singer. I singer. Oh, so were you a bit of a heartthrob? So did you? Oh, they, were I'm there groupies sure
1: that, but, or? There were... uh, well. <laughs> what happened in the eighties, Stacey? In the eighties. <laughs> We, we had a, we had a lot of fun. It was it was yeah, good. We had a, a yeah. group of friends that would follow us around when we were playing in different venues, and
0: that's so much fun. Yeah, so were you? A, so during that period, was there any visual art happening? Were you doing drawing? In my life? Yeah, um, in your life, Did apart you do- from
1: painting banners for the back for, to display behind the band, not really. No, um, and in fact, it was after I'd been working in that field for a while that um, I decided to. Um, Well, I didn't – I felt like I wasn't going anywhere ultimately. And I remember I was at a pub in The Rocks just there socially with some friends, and I saw an old guy walk in. He must have been 40, which from when the perspective of a 20-something-year-old seemed like um, he was ancient. And he was uh, setting up for a gig. He was obviously playing in this pub in The Rocks that night. And I remember thinking um, he didn't look like he was having fun. He, He obviously didn't want to be there. He was trudging in, carrying all these amps and mics and things and the crowd was swilling around and probably half of them were drunk and I'm sure he was anticipating them bumping into him and spilling drinks on his amp and which was the kind of thing that would happen in those venues and I just remember thinking that could be, that's my trajectory, that's where I could end up if I'm not um, more deliberate about this and I thought, do I really want to go down that path? And clearly, the answer was no, <laughs> and I also figured that while I loved music, i don 't think I had sufficient talent to ever really reach the dizzy heights that you know I would like to have done, and i 'm a bit of a perfectionist, and unless I can do something really well, I find it frustrating to to do it at all. So I was talking to a friend of mine over a couple of glasses of red wine, and he was a student at ashton's Julian Ashton 's art school. And he's, I was telling him my tale of woe, and he said, oh, you should come along to Ashton's. He said, um, it's a great social life, and you'll learn to draw and paint. And he started to talk to me about the art, but I was ready to um, to go along before he even got to that. Oh, so, so it's I, more
0: of a social thing that you were well, after.
1: Well, I mean, to be honest, I really did want to try and come up with some sort of uh, – art is something that I remember doing as a child with a great deal of passion, and I th- – thought I was reasonably good at it at the time. And I thought maybe that's just a childhood memory and as an adult maybe I'm not that good. I don't know. I'll only know if I give it a try. So I thought, well, this is an opportunity to do that, to give it a try and see where it takes me. Mm.
0: And what was it like? Because we've talked about Julian Ashton Art School a lot on the podcast. For people who haven't heard about it before, it's more of a traditional art school. What were your memories?
1: I had <clears throat> I had no idea. I remember one time um Philip Ashton said to me, we were talking about colour and he said, so yellow, is yellow warm or cool? He was asking me. And I had no idea. I, I realised that I just had no idea about any of this stuff. And um so I was learning from from the ground up. So my first memory then was drawing because you would start by drawing everything was in charcoal on cartridge paper. So it was very traditional in that sense. I didn't own a camera for many, many years, and, and including at that point. You would then so, – so you would start doing drawings and doing tonal studies, drawings of flayed figures, skulls. I, I remember doing quite a few skulls. And then tonal studies was, was the next step. So you would, you would tend to paint uh, – sorry, draw a, a range of tonal values, everything from black to white and, and the grey scale between that. And then you would graduate to painting and painting – still life to begin with Um, and when you got a handle on that uh, you would work you would go up to painting from life painting the live model and finally it seemed to me at the time that the the kind of highest the crescendo of that hierarchy of stages was portraiture and you would paint a portrait and that was considered to be the most demanding challenging difficult uh, genre within that range because not only were you painting the figure in the form of a portrait, but you were trying in some way to encapsulate the likeness. Although that wasn't really focused upon too uh, much at that stage, and um, and then, and but after that, I, I remember doing some watercolor work as well with Wenda Ashton. Uh-huh. Okay. Who was Dick Ashton's wife.
0: Right. So the other work was in oils and this yeah. is watercolour. Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. And
1: watercolour, I found then, and I, and I would still say, I, I would hold this to be true, that watercolour is much, much harder than oil paint.
0: Yeah, definitely. I agree with that. That's right. Well, I suppose because you can't correct it as, as easily.
1: No, you get one bite of the cherry, really.
0: So well, you don't do any watercolour these uh, days? Uh,
1: these days I don't do very much. What I started to do straight after art school was I, I got work as an illustrator and in that field I was doing watercolour, I was doing um, oil paint, acrylic paint, coloured pencil, a little bit of airbrush, whatever was required because every job was unique and the style that you were there to paint or, or draw or work in was uh, specific to that job. So everything was, was different.
0: Ah, uh, So what, what sort of jobs would it be? What they um,
1: everything from movie posters to cornflakes packets,
0: and so figures would have been quite important. Yeah, yeah, it,
1: it was. And as I say, at that point when I started in that field, I didn't own a camera, so I would set up a still life with the lettering of you know some product, some coffee bean or whatever it might have been, you know a bushel's of coffee or something, and I was hand lettering it by sight, you know, by uh, just having the thing set up like a still life. Yeah, yeah, and. People said to me, some of the other illustrators who I met during that period said, "You're crazy. You know, this is this is how we do it." And and they had all kinds of devices and projecting machinery and things that would help that would aid that process.
0: Ah, so it's tracing, more tracing. Essentially, yeah yeah, 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 right.
1: And and you know, it might have been literally using tracing paper to, you know, work something out, trace off a off a photograph, and then carbon underneath that carbon paper that you would use to transfer. So all those sorts of techniques. Yeah. And this was back in the um, in the 90s, uh, late 80s, early 90s. So there were lots of um, techniques that really aren't used these days and techniques used these days that weren't even about – like. Um, Computers and Photoshop was not even a thing back no. then.
0: Well, and even to get an image of something that you wanted to work from for mm. uh, for some advertising or something must have been difficult too because yeah. you had to go and find the library, I suppose, yeah, or something.
1: Uh, that's right. They had um, books and um, the organisations that produced photo catalogues of a whole range of different photos for advertising purposes and, um, contain lots of figures so we'd usually use those or we'd draw each other yeah you know I was in a building in North Sydney where there were lots of other artists and illustrators and designers and photographers and we we would use each other as models very frequently
0: well that's right Um, because I remember when um you know like I think it was in the 90s actually to to draw the nude not from life It was pretty hard to find for, oh, unless you've got, I don't know, magazines or something, but it was pretty yeah. hard to find. Them. I remember, you know, you'd find some books that had some nude photos for draw, for artists, yeah. but there wasn't a lot of that. You know, so now I remember when YouTube started and everything, you get these videos where people were modelling. It's like yeah. it's a whole different world, isn't Yeah,
1: it? oh, it is. The resources are, are, they're so rich, there's so much available now.
0: Yeah. So, like, tell me, okay, so you were... Working as an illustrator, how do we jump to become a portraitist?
1: While I was at art school, prior to illustrating, the thing that we would all aspire to as students sitting around the lunch table was the Archibald Prize. People would talk about it and when one of my teachers, Nigel Thompson, won the Archibald, in fact won it twice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we'd look at him and think, wow, you know, we could one day maybe, if we're lucky, get to that stage And um, so it was really – that sowed the seed for me um, deep down to want to pursue fine art. And even though I was working in this commercial art field, which I I loved, I I mean, it was exciting and challenging, uh, but the deadlines were were killers. You know, you were given a job and you'd say, when is it due, and they'd say yesterday. And so Mm. you're behind the eight ball right to to start with, Mm. which made it um, difficult. So I then – with with that in mind, I remember thinking – I remember entering uh, the Archibald. Even when I was at art school, I entered the Archibald and didn't get in, of course. Yeah. Was, do you remember who
0: you painted? Yeah, it was
1: a self-portrait.
0: Oh, okay. It, it was one
1: of the things I was doing as a kind of a major work. Um, when you're about to uh, graduate, if that's the right word, or at least do work that's going to it, you'll get a diploma as a result of it. Uh, one of those was a self-portrait. And I remember spending a lot of time on it, weeks, maybe months. Um, so
0: I presume it was like um, what, layered layers and layers of, of oil paint? paint?
1: Yeah. It, it was. It wasn't so much an alla prima approach, which is really the way I paint these days, more in that very direct way. Mm. It was actually, yeah, it was layers. So I remember painting the whole thing originally, initially in um, uh, in umber. I think it was either burnt or raw, raw umber and, and then... Work, mapping the whole thing out monochromatically then adding color a little bit like the way i just i found out later uh, norman rockwell used to work and in fact i rem- remember being as an illustrator a big fan of rockwell's work and um and i'm always trying i even now i like to try new things mm. i think it just keeps you fresh and expanding your horizons as you go mm. and so i remember um studying the way Rockwell worked. I read books that explained his technique and he would draw um, a composition initially uh, in charcoal on paper and then redraw it on canvas. And, I mean, the amount of work he put in was extraordinary. He would redraw it on canvas, then he would fix that and then he would paint over that very finished drawing in um, Mars violet, which is a kind of a, um, a cool... Uh, terracotta sort of color, a, a, a warm. I uh, might even have an example of it here. This is this is um, Venetian red. It's not no. quite the same as Mars violet, but it's very similar. It's it's ah, like an earthy, okay. warm color, which is yeah, actually right. great for flesh tones. And and he used that as an underpainting for the whole uh, of his uh, pictures. Um, and then he would, would he would glaze. A wash of colours over in various passages, and then and then this is like about the fifth stage now. Mm. <laughs> he would then paint over that in solid colour and and by the time he'd done that it was finished. And oh, so I remember right. trying to work in that way and and it, I kind of condensed the methodology somewhat, but it it was really a very useful uh, technique.
0: Well, it would have been also teaching you a lot about. Because you spend so much time on one work um, mm. about form and values yeah. and all that sort of thing, which yeah. you've got to sort of learn along the way somehow, I yeah, suppose. Yeah, very you know? much so. Yeah.
1: Well, when I was at Ashton's art school, I spent some time uh, in parallel with that training, uh, studying with Graham Inson, and his big thing was tonal values. And Graham, in turn, had been he was a protege of Max Meldrum. And Max, in turn, had studied in Paris in the late 1800s, early 1900s, roughly speaking, at the time when Whistler and Monet and Sargent and all of these guys were were doing their thing. And Sargent, in particular, who studied under Carolus Durand, uh, used a method where he would, which Durand taught him and the other students, where he would mark a spot on the floor, or he would set up his easel, and then he would walk back and mark a spot on the floor and used that um, distance between the spot on the floor and the painting as a kind of a um, – almost like a fast bowler in cricket. He'd he'd, he'd step back and he'd want – in some cases, the sergeant was reputed to have almost run up to his canvas. And I think that the idea is that he would have had in mind what he was planning to do for that next, next brushstroke. And before he forgot it, he would race up to the canvas and dash it out and then take his time to come back to that spot and analyse whether that last thing was successful or or not. Mm. And And That
0: that was from life, I presume. Yeah, yeah, Yeah.
1: exactly. And that was the way Graham taught us to paint. And, in fact, this little picture here, which is um, uh, my first effort studying with Graham, it's Beethoven's Death Mask. And you can see it's monochrome. It's basically black and white paint and mixed together to produce the greys. And the way he taught us to paint was uh, he would see the painting as a... He said there were three components. There's the drawing, the proportions, which are fairly obvious, I guess. The colour, which again is pretty obvious. And he said the third thing, which is not quite so obvious, and a lot of people miss, the total values, or as Americans would say, values. So this is an example of, of that approach to painting, where he would re- he would remove the colour from the equation entirely so that you were... He focused entirely on the tonal values. Um, so that's how this would come about. And there was no preliminary drawing. You would simply map out in a very, very loose, um, uh, non-specific way. Um, the You would separate the dark from the light, is what Graham would say. So if you half close your eyes and look at this, um, even this picture, or the actual subject, likewise, you would see that there's a, a kind of a light area in the middle with a few dark patches and then a kind of a mid-tone in the background. So you would separate it very simply into those three tonal values and then start to paint it in that way. And just by scrubbing in with a dry brush those areas.
0: So it's like seeing the big shapes of those yeah, areas. Yeah. yeah,
1: very much. See, seeing the big picture. And it was all about not getting caught up in the trivia that you you notice at close range. So if you're right up at your canvas, you'll see all kinds of things that worry you and obsess you, but none of them, for the most part at least, uh, are of any consequence and they're not important and you don't see them from a distance. But the things that you do see from a distance, you tend not to be able to see at close range. So, um, Oh,
0: like what sort of things?
1: The biggest thing that you can't see, there's two things that you can see far more accurately from a distance, and it's kind of almost, it's counterintuitive. And those two things are the tonal values and proportion. So from a distance, uh, if well, l- let me say it this way, if you're close up at your painting and you're painting away, you'll find it very difficult to discern the difference in the tonal values of different areas of the painting at close range. From a distance, it's much, much easier to make that uh, discernment. Yeah. Likewise with the proportion. So when you're up close, it's harder to tell whether you've got the head the right proportion with respect to the hand or the, the shoulders or whatever it might be. It's hard to um, to make that distinction. So from a distance, it's much easier. Mm. So if you keep stepping back, oftentimes you'll step back. If you've been up close to your painting for a long time and you haven't really had a chance to step back or you haven't forced yourself to step back, when you do, you'll go, oh, good grief, I've I really that, or I've got that so wrong. But at close range you don't see it. So part of one of the beauties of that technique that Graham taught was that it forced you to keep stepping back as part of the, the methodology. So you, you couldn't just get caught up in front of the painting for too long. It just wouldn't it didn't happen. So Graham was very rigorous about that, and he taught his because that's I guess the way he was taught by Max Meldrum. And when I was there, I, I went along with that. But to me, it was a method that I would use and have used all of my painting life, but not in the same rigorous way that uh, Graham taught it. You know, I, I've kind of adapted it to suit my purposes.
0: So how did, it, did you make the jump from being, you know, working as an mm. illustrator and then starting to take commissions for portrait portraits? Uh, the way
1: I made that transition, it was a very gradual one. I probably had in the back of my mind my parents saying, you know, make sure you've got plenty of work on, and and it was a valid point they made. Mm. Um, So I I had at art school done uh, portraits, a self-portrait that I'd entered in the Archibald unsuccessfully, and and I was still aware of it. And, of course, every year it would come around again, and I I remember thinking uh, at one point when I wasn't quite so busy with illustration, because it did keep me very busy, I thought, look, I'll – Submit something, and I'm just trying to remember what it was. I think the first portrait I entered after that um, gap um, while I was illustrating was of John Doyle, and it was – no, sorry, correcting myself here. It was of Nigel Thompson, the artist who had himself won the Archibald twice and been a teacher of mine at Ashton's. And, And Nigel was a very eccentric guy, lovely guy, but very out there. And so I painted him in that mode and he, he looked uh, – and it was kind of monochrome, all in blues. And I don't know why I painted it that way, but that's, it just seemed to me a good idea at the time. Yeah. So I did and it didn't get in.
0: Was it just head and shoulders? No, or? it was
1: uh, like a three-quarter length, but it was way oversized and it was <gasps> – Oh, it was on the big ones. Yeah, it was one of those big – well, we were told, you know, you've got to paint big for the Archibald. Otherwise, that don't, doesn't get noticed. And at that stage, that's really what everybody was doing, so.
0: Yeah. Well, you know, let's jump forward a little bit because you've you've been a finalist 15 times in the Archibald Prize, mm. uh, but not only that, you've also twice won the Packing Room Prize and twice won People's Choice for um, the Roy and H, fantastic Roy and HG painting, which actually okay. is in the Archie 100. Yeah. Travelling around the country um, and is a much-loved painting, I've got to say. What's that whole experience? I mean, you did finally become a finalist. What 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 yeah, was that yeah. like? When the first time that you were it was at- a dream
1: come true, really. The first one that I, I had painted John. Speaking of Ruin HG, I had painted John Doyle, uh, Roy Slaven. Prior to that, just by himself was a portrait of John as an Archibald entry because I, I would listen to him on two BL in the afternoons, the radio. Uh, program while I was illustrating All right. and from two to four on the ABC every afternoon. And, and he was, I, I was fascinated by him as a, as a person. So I approached him and he um, uh, agreed for me to paint him and it didn't get into the uh, Archibald proper, but was a finalist. It was in the Salon de Refusé exhibition. Okay. And it was quite popular there. And, I, and, and so I had that in the back of my mind. I thought it would be nice to paint the pair of them together at some point, but I, I let that idea go. Um, we should until- just—I
0: I should just mention for people who aren't from Australia—who Roy and HG are—they're this, they're like a. Well, when they're together, they're like this a comedic duo. They're mm. sport, they sport—they were sports commentators together. Yeah. They're very, very funny, and yeah. nearly all Australians would know who they were yeah. back in those days. Exactly, so, and they did this great commentary of the two thousand Olympics. Exactly, and I think you painted. Of oh, so, so you go. Well, that was a bit of background. Was, yeah. So yeah, so straight
1: after the Olympic game coverage in two thousand, um, I thought these guys would be. They were. Their name was on everyone's uh, the tip of everyone's tongue. They were so popular. They were the icing on the cake of the Olympic broadcast. <laughs> they
0: were, yeah, yeah. So I thought
1: now's the time to paint them, and and again they uh, happily agreed. I remember sitting in while they were doing um, This Sporting Life, which was their afternoon program uh, on the weekends at Triple J. Uh, and I was sitting there in the studio while they were uh, going live to air, sketching them. Uh, and then I, I photographed them as well later on and then produced this portrait, which, funnily, funnily enough, at the time, I wasn't at all happy with. And really? I nearly didn't enter it because I just felt, I don't know what it was. There was something about the composition that just troubled me and it may have been that I was just becoming fixated because I'd been working on it for about a month. Oh. First another version, which later I turned into just a portrait of HG, which is at Macquarie University these days. Oh yeah. And then the the version that I finally entered.
0: Which is I should just briefly explain for people who are listening who can't get to their phones. It's um so so Roy sorry, no, HG, who's Greg Pickhaver, is in mm. the front, in the yeah. foreground. Yes. And John Doyle is just behind him, slightly behind him. Yeah. Um. And I think I th- hg has got his hand on his hip. I think.
1: Yeah. H. Uh, G. John's hands. My bike.
0: was it? The other way around. What a picture of it! I've forgotten. <laughs> I've got HG it H. G.
1: has a has a hand on his hip for sure. Uh,
0: yeah. I've got it here.
1: Uh, Isn't that funny? I, I don't. Yeah, even Yeah, he does.
0: It. And and John Doyle's got his hand in his pocket. Ah. Uh,
1: right. Right. Yeah. And John was always, every time I saw John, he was always wearing a t shirt. So I had to have him wearing the t shirt. Yes. But I added a little bit to the t shirt. I included Fatso, that was their unofficial mascot for the Olympics Fatso, the
0: The wombat. Can I, yeah. That's right. A
1: fat so and so wombat.
0: <laughs> oh, so you put that on his t shirt. Yeah. Oh, you put that I on. I put that on there. So oh, that didn't okay. exist
1: in, um, in, in reality.
0: And so what do you think it was about the portrait that – you think it's just you were working on it for so long that you just couldn't see it oh, fresh anymore? What what, you, yeah. what sort of bothered you about it? I remember
1: it? showing um, a gallery uh, director friend of mine as I was going to the art gallery and I said, oh, look, I really don't know about this. I'm not too sure. And he said, oh, I don't think it's okay. I wouldn't feel um, any crimes about entering it. So I thought, okay, well, maybe I should. And – but I was very sheepish about it. I, I kind of had it under wraps, and I had something draped over it so people wouldn't see it. And um, but when I got it to the gallery, the media were there, and and the the thing, the, a gust of wind caught this drape, lifted it up, and then someone noticed who it was. And of course, Roy and HG were very popular at the time. Yeah. And so, oh, Roy and HG, can we get a pit? And I thought, oh, okay, the game's up. I just I went along with it from that point. And um, when, but I didn't. I didn't know if it would get in because getting into the Archibald is the tough part, mm. you know. G- getting anything beyond that is icing on the cake, but just getting hung is is such a challenge. So um, when it when I, I got a when I did hear that it got hung, I was tickle pink, of course, and and I was in the media scrum in there to, to hear who would win that year. It wasn't me, but Steve Peters, the chief packer, tapped me on the shoulder and said, "Paul, you've won the." Um, you've won the Packers Prize, the Packing Room Prize. And I said, oh, that's great. Uh, what's the Packing Room Prize? It wasn't known back then. This was oh, one. Of the, this this was was 2001. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it yeah. wasn't, the, you know, now it's like almost as famous as the Archibald proper, yes. but back then it was uh, just some something that someone thought up, you know, on the back of an envelope and it seemed like a good idea at the time and – Um, But it wasn't well known. So I didn't know what it was. And I think it was 500 bucks and a pat on the back. That was.
0: Oh, and it didn't get in the papers or anything back then. Or do you?
1: You know, actually, it did. And I think because of the subject, Raw and HG were just so big that anything that. In fact, Greg said to me later, because it was the front page, it got enormous publicity, it was on the front page of all the newspapers as the packing prize winner. And Greg said to me, "You know, this is um, unsustainable. This level of publicity surrounding—I think he was talking about the Archibald more generally, but specifically his this portrait of him and John. He said it's hard to imagine that this could perpetuate, that this level of, uh, of publicity could continue. And 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 then later, when it got the uh, People's Choice Award, um, it started again. You know, and and." Uh, <laughs> Which was wonderful. For yes. Me. I mean, oh. But I have no illusions that the reason it was so popular was the subject. Oh, I mean, hopefully, I portrayed them in a sympathetic manner. And I think I also, oh. having Greg forward and John back was the way they'd often perform. So it seemed to ring true. And, and initially, mm. I had John mm. in front and Greg behind. Oh, really? Yeah. And that was the earlier version. And it just didn't work. It just didn't feel right. But when I put Greg in front, And I I explained that to them. And he said, yeah, that's how, how it is for us as well. He said, for some reason, and he said this without a trace of ego. He said, for some reason, when I'm out front and John's behind, that visual dynamic seems to work for them.
0: Isn't that interesting? Yeah. Well, it's interesting um, talking about composing a painting with two figures because I think that's quite difficult to that do. That is
1: hard, yeah.
0: And you've done it again brilliantly this year, I've got to say. That portrait that you hanging in the Archibald this year of Hugh Jackman and Deborah Lee Furness, who don't need any introduction really, I think everyone knows who they are, is fabulous um and i'll just briefly describe it for people who are listening if you, who can't get to a screen um hugh hugh is in the foreground just talking about foreground and background he's in the front and deborah is behind him but she's elevated because she's standing on a mattress which is really interesting and she's got her arms around him and he's and i really love the the fact he's got uh, his hand up on his chest and her hand comes around his shoulder on top of his hand so yeah. there's this the two hands in this central spot um, and the legs that like the th- there's four legs but it looks like so you have very cleverly made it like three three sort of vertical yeah because the the two legs in the middle are quite good so can you tell me a little bit about that because well how did that come about? Yeah
1: well there were several things I was wanting to um, capture in the composition and to me composition is a really important component of a a painting. It's something I spend a lot of time on in the early stages of a painting. So in this case I wanted to capture the intimacy between Hugh and Deb because that's certainly who they are as people And, and a portrait that's not authentic I think fails from the from the start, so I wanted to capture that about them, and the fact that there's an equality between them. They're very much uh, a, a team of equals. I mean, Hugh's the the one who's now the you know the superstar, uh, world famous um, actor, singer, dancer, yeah. everything else. Um, but Deb, when they first met, was was exactly you know she was the the famous actress who. And he was the new the new guy on the yeah, block. Yeah, that's so right. It's, uh, it's interesting how that t- transition.
0: And did they have? So you visited? I think you said you you visited them in New York. At I their did. Home.
1: Yeah, I went to their home in New York and used the um, uh, that space. In fact, that thing that Deb is standing on, which looks just like a mattress, is in fact a, a low lounge. It's a very contemporary looking lounge. So ah, she's standing on that. Right. Um, I explored a myriad poses and options but one thing I liked about that firstly that they were standing and there's a sense of of action or at least potential action there it had a theatrical quality because of the the stance and Hugh I mean they both look fantastic and they both know how to present to the viewer And, um, and Hugh's Fit as a Fiddle, I mean, he's doing his Broadway show now and dancing, and mm, um, which incredible. I got a chance to see while I was there, which was just fabulous.
0: Oh, wow, that would have been fun. How yeah. oh, no, amazing. One minute you're sort of photographing them, the next minute you're watching them on stage. Yeah. stage.
1: and, you know, to see Hugh, for example, in that one-on-one situation where he's kind of, you know, a relatively reserved guy, I mean, you know, he's quiet and considered and very thoughtful about what we were doing. And then to see him on stage where he just comes to life and, you know, um, he, he has the audience absolutely mesmerised by his talent and his charm and charisma. He's just... He's a, he's, a very rare entertainer, oh, I think. Oh, he is, yeah. yeah. He's a he's a star. Yeah, He, he really star. is a star. Yeah. And a very nice guy. He's a lovely guy. Everybody <laughs> said that, asked me the question, you know, what were they like, were they nice? And I said, look, they were lovely. They really were. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. I'm not yeah no pretense at all they were and very down to earth very kind of Aussie in their approach to life you know the way that we like to think of Australians abroad particularly they were very much like that so so the elements there were so there was the intimacy there was the idea of that almost a triangular shaped composition because i wanted to make the point that when they're together there's a balance in in their connection and so I wanted to create that sort of, and, and a triangle is a very solid, um, this is probably my dad's engineering background coming out in me, but um, a triangle is a, a shape that you can't distort, like a, a square you can kind of push and, and it's not as strong. So from an engineering perspective, a triangle is a very strong shape.
0: Yeah, it's quite symbolic in lots of ways. Yeah, yeah. I, I think so. And yeah. Well, it's also a, a composition that, has been used throughout the ages. I suppose the triangle's is quite—that's um, true—an important shape,
1: and it shows um, solidity and groundedness. And again, to me, they're very grounded people. You know, they. I was talking to a guy I met at the Archibald uh, at an event there, who uh, himself lives in New York, and he said, "Oh yeah, I, I know Deb. We, we walk our our dogs together, and you know, I I just met her on the street, and she was asking me about my dog." you know they're just very yeah, down to earth very people.
0: very yeah very down to earth yeah. well can we talk about another painting and it's actually well actually we're going to talk about two paintings we're, yeah. uh, very important paintings and one of them is behind you there are portraits of the fabulous maggie tabra yeah. who is a fashion publishing and media personality yeah. and a just a very elegant uh, beautiful woman yeah. um and it's very well known in australia uh and the interesting thing about these two portraits, well, there's lots of interesting things about them, but they were painted 21 years apart. Yeah. And this portrait that's behind you was um, in the 2020 Archibald yeah. and the other one was in the 1999 Archibald. Yeah. And I think this is one of the first paintings. The 1999 painting was probably the first time I noticed your work oh. and I remember that painting. And I also the Campisi painting, that was another oh. one that I remember, I was really struck by. I remember... Really studying that one Because I was so um, You know blown away by how Lifelike and beautiful it was But anyway uh, that's digressing Thank you (laughs) (laughs) Um, But the interesting thing about the Maggie Two Maggie Tavra works They're very large Um, They're actually Well would you say they're life size Are they life size Um,
1: They're pretty close to life size Yeah actually now that I'm looking she's, uh, She's fairly tall Maggie And you know statuesque yeah, figure. they so, may well, be just oh, a, yeah, a, a bit life under. Size. Yeah, that's yeah.
0: interesting. And so, um, there's a lot of contrast, but there's a lot of similarities. So yeah. the the similarity probably is the pose, in that she's got her arms folded. Um, she's wearing a long dress. She's barefoot. You mm. can just see that she's barefoot from the long dress, peeking under the long dress. But there there are um, contrasts, and that is that in one in the 1999, she's in a black dress, yeah. and in the 2020 she's in a a white dress or a light dress and the background the backgrounds are contrasting so can you tell me a little bit about this these two works Mm. so
1: maggie i approached at the time back in 99 or just prior to that i think it was that year that i first approached her she'd just come out with a till all autobiography which was a great success commercially and Maggie, I read the book and, and it struck me, and I'd grown up with seeing Maggie on TV as a kid when I was a young bloke. Yeah. She struck me as someone who is, you know, the elder, elder states woman of fashion and uh, someone who was very beautiful and elegant and strong and I thought would make a fabulous, and, and particularly because she came up with that book. She was flavour of the month at that point. And I thought, again, now's the I, I do like to try and paint someone who's topical when I – choose a, a, a subject or approach a subject for the Archibald. So that was the rationale for why I approached her. And um, when I started working with her, I, as I often do, I started by taking a whole lot of photos of her in different um, arrangements, different scenarios, indoors, outdoors, under an oak tree with her dog, a whole plethora of different options. And I, I, I finally decided this is cutting a long story very short (laughs) on a very simple composition very simple pose because she struck me as someone who was had such a a presence and in all the photos I took of her and drawings I was doing at the time and little color studies she had such a strength and such a presence that she needed nothing else in the painting in the composition to support her visually so with um with Maggie's portrait, when I finished the first ver- the first portrait back in '99, and it's just her wearing this uh, in that case a black caftan, um,
0: and it was like right up to her neck, so it was it was like, a beautiful dress. And
1: and you know that was it was to my the way I depicted her because of what she chose to wear. I I kind of felt like I was running with that, you know, I took the ball and ran with that, and and so. The pose that she adopted, very beautiful and elegant, was arms folded But she and she pulls it off. But it's also a very defensive thing to do this, mm. to fold your arms mm. in terms of body language. So there was that, there was the high kind of monastic collar that covered up, you know, and her, her, her arms were folded to kind of visually protect herself. The outfit went right down to her feet. The only thing that was showing was her bare feet and bright red toenail polish. And it was like this was the only area in her whole figure where she was allowing that sensuous femininity to be expressed, yeah. and everything else was under wraps. Her hair was pulled back tight, and everything was was strong. And I'm not letting anything out except for the feet.
0: Ah, was that her idea to be barefoot? no? That was
1: oh to be barefoot. Um, I think it was actually yeah. Yeah. So in a sense, maybe she subconsciously was kind of projecting that to me and I just picked up on it. Yeah. But it, to me it felt like a really important message to to make in in the in the painting. When I completed it, the moment of truth with every portrait, commissions or those that you approach the art, the the subject to paint is the reveal. Yes. You know, what are they going to think of the painting? Totally. And it's always a bit nerve-wracking as you can imagine. So I had Maggie's portrait, and it's the same size as this one. In fact, the other canvas is almost exactly the same size. I think it is exactly the same size. So it's fairly um, confronting to see a full-length, roughly life-size depiction of yourself that you haven't seen up up until that point in front of you. And Maggie, when I showed her, began to cry. And I I thought, my goodness, she hates it. And... She saw my reaction to her reaction and she grabbed my arm and she said, Oh no, Paul, I love it. I love the painting. But you've revealed things in there that I thought I'd kept under wraps, kept hidden. And so it's confronting to me and, um, and I think she was a bit feeling a bit vulnerable anyway because she'd just broken up with Richard Zechariah. Mm. She'd just come out with this autobiography that was just spilling yeah. everything of her private life.
0: But that—that's like the ultimate. It was the compliment, ultimate isn't compliment. Compliment,
1: yeah. You couldn't ask for a more for a more genuine and uh, beautiful sentiment that she expressed. I, I was touched by it. But that.
0: also, um, what do you were just saying that you know she was looking straight at the viewer. Do you prefer that? Gaze like, not the-
1: always. No, I, I often actually prefer it when the person's looking off into the middle distance, and sometimes there can almost you almost capture a kind of a visionary look. You know, if it's someone who is maybe a, a developer, someone who's you know developed, like um, maybe a university president who has brought a university to life that was previously about to crumble. And he's known as being someone who really was uh, responsible for its success. I mean, David Stern was like that in, in terms of the NBA. He brought it back to life. It was crumbling prior to his tenure. Mm. And so sometimes having someone symbolically represent that visionary approach that they've taken to that field that they're known for can be really good. And you don't necessarily have to be looking at the subject However, there is something nice about having the, the subject look at – sorry, at the viewer, I meant to say. There is something nice about the subject looking at the viewer because they do make that visual eye-to-eye connection. Yeah. Which is, yeah. Um, you know, as we know in day-to-day
0: life, is so important. Yeah, <laughs> I suppose so, it's, it's quite intimate, isn't it? And what proportion of works do you think you've already thought, this is the way I'm going to do it before the photo shoot – as opposed to thinking, oh, wait a second, this is I'm learning more about this person while I'm doing it. I,
1: I always come along with some idea of how I might like to compose the picture, but I hold it very lightly because I know that almost invariably out of left field a great idea that I, that I couldn't have anticipated uh, will emerge and that happens almost invariably.
0: Does it? Yeah,
1: all the time. And with commission work as well, which is one of the reasons why I like to start by photographing the person and just all kinds of different things, things that maybe I don't think are going to work um, or the person themselves is not necessarily that comfortable doing. Well, I don't do things that they're uncomfortable with, but just, you know, out of their comfort zone a little bit.
0: Why would you do that?
1: Because sometimes these things emerge when, when you weren't expecting them. And unless you try and stretch... The boundaries a little bit it's going to be very safe and it's always better if it's not too safe I, I think and you can always reject that idea if it ends up being a, a dud idea you go well, okay well, we're not going to go down that path but you've tried it and then you can at least um dispense with it uh having having tried it there's nothing worse I think than at the end of the exercise, think, "Gee, if only I'd done this, or if only I'd tried yeah, that." Yeah, I like to try everything to begin with, and and. Uh,
0: so, do you mean when you say everything, you mean seated, standing, mm. all d- different poses, yeah. and
1: indoors, different- outdoors? You know, uh, an angle that I might not have thought originally. In the case of a, of a, like with um, uh, Hugh and Deb, different configurations mm. of, of their pairing. Laying down on the ground, standing up. We tried a whole range of different things. Yeah. And uh, when – when um, uh, and, and Deb was actually great because she's a, a painter as well, as well as being a uh, obviously an actor and yeah. a producer yeah. and, uh, and a painter, among other things. Yeah,
0: that's amazing. Yeah, I didn't know that until you told me that today. Yeah. Well, you know what else I find interesting and I'm curious about with um, when you're you know, doing a photo shoot to for, in preparation for the portrait, mm. is how do you relax the person so that you're getting the right expression? Or how do you know when it's the right expression?
1: Um, well, it's, the, for me, the photography, for, for many years I didn't own a camera when I was at art school and for years after that. So I became very familiar with painting from life, only from life. And drawing from life and and I think that was a really good um, thing to a really good way to learn because when I did start to use a camera I was very aware of the lies that camera that photos can tell you and you've got to learn as a young illustrator as I was then to ignore a lot of what is in the photo because it's just not what you would see You know, the colours may be washed out or the proportions may be exaggerated because of the lens of the camera. Mm -hmm. If you are too close to the subject, the front of the face, the nose and the lips may be enlarged abnormally. It's continually a process of referring back to life. And so I usually, when I can, when the person has sufficient time for me, uh, do a life study as well, an oil study, Mm -hmm. just of them sitting for me after I've taken photos and the photos give me an idea of what sort of composition I might go with and, and also give them an idea of how i 'm seeing them, but then having them sit for me means the main purpose for that exercise is for me to really study them carefully uh, on a on an ongoing basis for a couple of hours
0: and do you do you often then have them come back at the end
1: yeah yeah I, again if it 's an overseas client um, it can be a bit tricky, but um, but if I can, yeah, I do. And and then tweak things at a kind of a final sitting. Usually by that stage, I must say, I've spent so much time with the painting and I've also done all that preparation work, which, and obviously preparation, if it's done properly, means that the work from there on isn't as problematic and, and you're not having to retrace your steps so much. So... Um, I do, but more often than not, actually, I I had an interesting experience many years back in New York. Um, I was doing a a portrait of some, I won't mention any names here, but it was a a fairly high-profile gentleman and his wife, and he came in to see the final painting. And I was there with the the gallery director, and it had all been framed up beautifully. It was a beautiful frame, actually. And um, they did nice frames in New York. (laughs)
0: Like a gold one. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. But it was
1: very tasteful and understated and, uh, yeah, it was great. And um, I then, uh, the, the the lady who was the gallery director said, now they may want you to uh, adjust things if you're happy. Oh, yeah, of course, I want them to be happy with the result. So I, I had my palette there and I paints all mixed up and ready to go in case they might have wanted me to change things or, or even if I'd have felt that I hadn't quite got something and I needed to fix it. So I was there ready with that and I had – so if you imagine that the painting's on the easel over here, I'm back about this far back and then they were further back still. Initially I was chatting with them and they said, look, we love the painting but there's something not quite right about the mouth, which reminded me of that anecdote from Sergeant's yeah, yeah, life. Yeah. And I thought, well, that's, that's a good thing to hear. Which is, I mean, we
0: should should tell people it's sort of a a portrait is a painting with something wrong with the mouth. That
1: was his working definition of a portrait, I understand. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Which
0: is often true. Yeah. Well,
1: and and the reason, I think, the reason for that is that the mouth is the most pliable, movable part of a face. You're not going to be able to move unless you're, you know, Samantha out Bewitched. You're not going to be able to move your nose <laughs> or your ears or your eyes, maybe open or close them. But your mouth is very flexible and your jaw can move. And, and so that's the one part of the face which, you know, can change. And um, so anyway, this pair were looking at the painting and, and they mentioned that to me. And I said, okay, so if I do this, this, and this, I think that will address the issue you've raised. And they said, yeah, that makes sense. So... Um, I mixed up the colour and, as I say, they were back here. I was in the middle of the range and, and I said, and I turned around to them. And I said, so I'm going to do this. And they said, yep, that's good. They were both back here. I don't think they wanted to get too close. I'm not sure what they thought was going to happen. And I walked up to the canvas and I had my brush and I always stand to paint. So I had the brush out. Uh, my arm was outstretched. And I hadn't even touched the canvas. Maybe I just grazed it, but I virtually hadn't touched it. And in unison, back here together, they both said, stop, that's it, you've got it, that's, don't do any more. I hadn't even done it, I hadn't done a thing.
0: <laughs> maybe they regretted it. I don't know,
1: I don't know whether they felt like at least he's, he's taken on board our thoughts or maybe yeah. he's gonna, if he does something, he might bugger it up. I don't know what they were yeah, thinking. Maybe
0: they thought, oh, he was happy to change it, but, but he, you know, and then they sort of trusted you more.
1: Yeah, maybe that was it. Maybe they just felt they needed to to have a, a say in the final, yeah. which is fine. I like to work collaboratively, so I, I was you know happy to do oh, that. You know what I and find. It, Go sorry, on. I was going to say if it had been something that I thought would be detrimental to the painting, I would have said that. No, look, I don't think we should do that for this reason. But I'm happy to explain my rationale. Yeah. But on that in that case, it was something that. I, you know, wouldn't have been a, an issue. Yeah. But as it turns out, I didn't have to do it.
0: No, that's an amazing story. Well, the, the other amazing thing I think about that story is that you're willing to paint in front of them and that you've mixed up the paint and you were confident yeah. enough that the paint was, like, mixed up the right hue and everything and, I mean, you don't find that difficult? Um, at that
1: stage, because I was very familiar with the subject, I've been painting him for the last month or so, and... Uh, I didn't feel too bad. And I thought, if I've got a Terps rag here as well. So if I do bugger it up, I'll just wipe it off. The paint's dry underneath that. And I can um, fix it and, and repaint it. So I have done that sort of thing with other um, paintings. And, and there was uh, uh, one um, lady who was the, the wife of a gentleman who I painted again in New York. And she was actually teary once I'd finished doing these little adjustments that she'd asked for. And she was very kind of coy about even asking initially and i said no look i want you i want you both to be happy with this painting it's not something that you do every day and this is going to be there for time immemorial potentially to honor this bloke and i want i don't want you to be at all embarrassed by anything in the painting um and so and she kind of teared up when and she said oh i didn't think you could do it i thought once the painting was done it was i said no this is oil paint you can paint over and you know, continue yeah. to your heart's content.
0: Well, I suppose they—they also—they probably hold you in such high regard. They don't want to offend you. I think that's the other thing. They think they're going to offend you. Right. You know, yeah, so yeah. that's probably part of it. But actually, talking about that and talking about flattering people or mm. to make them happy or whatever, do you find um, that you have feel that in the back of your mind that I have to that I want them to be pleased? I want to flatter them.
1: Not well, pleased, yes, but flatter, no. So. Um when I'm painting um, p- particularly a commission portrait, because obviously if they're not happy with it, you're not going to get paid and and if you're making a living out of portraiture, that's a fairly important component. <laughs> so um, and, and I don't I, I like to paint people at their best, but not better than best. In other words, I don't want them to look like it's not them or that they're you know mm. glamorized in a way that's unrealistic.
0: You know, you've painted people in the arts, in business, in you know the law, in um, the sport, the church, the military. I mean, you've mm. covered nearly every single possible aspect of yeah. you know society. For example, you did. You know, the, I was absolutely astonished that you actually were commissioned to paint one of the Supreme Court justices in America. Mm. Which, you know, as I said to you, they could have asked anyone in the world to do yeah. that. Can you tell me a bit about that sitting? So yeah. you must have—you must not that have had very long. I'm no, sure.
1: No, no, I didn't. I mean, she's um, uh, one of the, it was Justice uh, Sonia Sotomayor, and she's one of the U.S. Supreme Court justices, and she's also one of Princeton's Princeton University's uh, most illustrious alumni. So they, Princeton, commissioned the portrait, but I went to the Supreme Court uh, in Washington to work with uh, the justice. And they um, they're so hospitable, the Americans, and, and they showed me around the Supreme Court building. And one of the at one point they said, uh, "This is not the highest court in the in the land, the Supreme Court." And I said, "What?" I said, "I thought this was the, the, the pinnacle." And they said, "No, there's one higher. It's the basketball court up on the third floor." <laughs> and I and the way they said it, I thought this is they must tell everybody this yeah, yeah, yeah. gag. <laughs> But it was. Uh, but they showed me around. It was actually quite extraordinary to see the behind the scenes, and and I actually got to see um, them sitting, the Supreme Court bench sitting, and I saw at that stage. Ruth Bader Ginsburg was alive, and I saw her, this tiny diminutive figure, yeah. behind the the, the the literally the bench, and all these other people there as well, the other justices um, sitting back there as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that was. Um, You feel like you're part of history.
0: I hope you enjoyed this first part of the two-part episode with Paul Newton. I'll be uploading the next episode soon uh, where you're going to get the inside scoop on Paul's techniques, use of colour and lots more. I also wanted to mention the major reveal in the Sydney art landscape a couple of weeks ago, and that's the expansion of the Art Gallery of New South Wales, known as the Sydney Modern Project. If you haven't heard about it, it's a standalone building about a 30-second walk from the existing building, which sits on the Domain Park lands on Sydney Harbour. And the director of the gallery, Michael Brand, saw this project through on time and on budget over the last 10 years. It's like nothing I have ever seen before. It's designed by Sana Architects. It's very welcoming and spacious, largely due to the light which enters the space because of how much glass there is. But it's also probably due to the light colour of the materials the architects have used, which includes over 50,000 hand-cut limestone bricks, which are just glorious. And also the double-height atrium in the centre of the building reaches over 11 metres at its highest point. And I think there are even curtains in that space, which must be the longest curtains in the world. And there are no thick columns holding the roofs up, just these slender white pillars. So all of that together gives this very airy light feeling, which I have to say feels quite inspiring. But you may ask, are there many paintings? Well, the short answer is yes. I remember seeing the architects fly through video of the building and thinking, Wow, there is a lot of glass in that building. I wonder if there are many walls. Um, But in fact, the gallery space and the exhibition space has almost doubled overall, and there are lots of walls in the exhibition spaces. And the first exhibition space you see when you enter is the Yirrubana Gallery, which is of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander art, which is a welcome change because the Aboriginal art was originally right down in the lowest level of the existing building. But bear in mind, there is other work of Indigenous artists throughout the building as well. Also, a highlight of the gallery is the tank, which you might have heard of. It's the 2,200 square metre underground space, which was originally built to store fuel during the Second World War. And thankfully, it was decided to keep that. And it's a very dark space with lots and lots of pillars in it. Um, it's hard to describe. You have to see it for yourself. And the first installation, the first commissioned installation there, is by Adrian Villar Rojas. Uh, he's an Argentinian Peruvian artist. And um, you'll see a glimpse of that astonishing work in my video where I take you down into the fabulous dark concrete space. So I've posted two short three-minute videos on my YouTube channel. One is a compilation of videos which I had posted on Instagram. And that gives you some idea of some of these spaces. It's by no means comprehensive of the gallery because I'm still exploring the building myself. I still haven't been to all the all the spots. And the second video is with Melbourne artist Richard Lua, who was one of the nine artists commissioned to create works for the new building. And it's a fabulous nine-panelled work which shows the people behind the construction of the building. It's a great composition on aluminium. It's called On-Site Construction of Sydney Modern, which resides on the Gadigal of the Eora Nation. And in the video, Richard tells me about the work and all about the background to it, what he was thinking about when he created it. And he's also agreed to an interview on the podcast next year, so I'm looking forward to that as well. Thanks for listening, and I'm going to leave you with a short clip of what you can expect from the next episode.
1: And I sometimes use those. I mean, these are just rules of thumb, and I don't ever stick to any of these things that I'm saying here, so... It's like a cook, you know, eventually they just kind of take a pinch of this and a pinch of that. But the reason I use black as a neutralizer is that it's very clean and it doesn't have any colour bias in and of itself. Like this is ivory black. It doesn't change the complexion. It doesn't make the colour look muddy when you mix it with the the reds and the yellows. So it maintains a clean, fresh flesh tone. And the more black you add along with the white, if you think about it when you're adding black and white, that's grey... It tends to grey off and cool down the colour.